Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hello, you're listening to The BIP Show. BIP is for business, investing and policy. That's what we're here to talk about. I'm Paul Colgan, Director at CT Group. I'm here with James Whelan, Macro Strategist and Investment Manager at VFS here in Sydney. How are you, James? Not bad, Paul. How's it going, mate? Uh, very well. We're here in Sydney recording on the 15th of October 2020. Joining us on the line from Amsterdam, as always, is Ken Vexler, Managing Director and Chief Investment Officer at Acumen Management. How are you, Ken? Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I'm still breathing, which is a lot more than can be said for some people around here. Early in the morning, Colgo, but looking forward to it. Let's get cracking. Yeah, um, our guest this week is industry professor at UTS Business School, uh, uh, Warren Hogan. He's a former chief economist at ANZ. He's also been a bond strategist uh, in his time, and he also spent time as an advisor at the Federal Treasury. Um, he's uh, now the founder of EQ Economics, and uh, Warren is one of the most experienced and forthright commentators on the Australian economy. So uh, we're going to take a bit of a close look uh, at where the Australian economy is at, especially with the federal budget budget just having been handed down. And the RBA today um, sending a clear signal that it's going to sit heavily on interest rates uh, for a considerable time. Uh, we'll also later take a look at markets globally, where fund managers uh, are putting their money as we head towards a big risk event in November. Uh, but uh, Warren, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Um, uh, while the budget is still fresh in people's memories, uh, you know, uh, it's worth digging into this a bit, I think. Um, quite a historic time. Uh, uh, I know you, you come from a, a, like a second generation economist, if you like. Um, uh, so it's in your family. Um, what do you make of it all? Well, thanks for having me on the show, Paul, Mark, Ken. Um, Make a lot of it. There's a lot to be made of it. There's a huge amount going on in the economy, um, trying to understand what's playing out. And then, of course, the policy responses are, are huge. The budget, I think, is uh, a bold economic statement from the government. And uh, although huge amounts of policy, and we can talk all about the different measures and their strengths and weaknesses, some unique stuff, some interesting stuff, the magnitude of it all is, is pretty substantial. But ultimately, this is a strategy to get this uh, economy and society back to where it was. That is, the private sector leading the way, getting us off government life support. So, you know, the, the government, which is obviously a right of centre government, is very keen um, to to sort of get back to normal and get the recovery going. And uh, this strategy doesn't come without risks, as I think we'll talk about today. Because I think a lot of governments, particularly left to centre governments, would be more inclined to keep the, the life support going for longer. Uh, the day after the budget, um, you said this. Um, so perspectives on the government's uh, election strategy, this budget is all about supercharging the economy in 2022. Um, they are actually running a big risk of a soft patch in the first half of 2021. Um, doesn't suggest an early election strategy to me. Uh, so has anything changed um, from then? No, that's just my interpretation. So I suppose the first thing is, you know, the, the Prime Minister who's the, has the decision is 
you know, barely even contemplating this and there's certainly been no decision made uh, at this stage. And, and Morrison seems like the kind of guy who, if, if, if possible, you just run your normal term. You know, he's, he's, he's pretty plain vanilla, for lack of a better word, in that respect. <laughs> um, but I think really the motivation for that comment was not only, you know, obviously the political commentariat sort of getting G'd up for an early election and giving themselves something to talk about, <laughs> but was that, you know, the, despite the government's forecasts of a pretty much a straight line recovery from here on in for Australia, um, my assessment is that they're actually taking a big risk with the end of these emergency policies. They haven't got enough stimulus in there early next year to make up for that. So we're actually going to have a bit of a soft patch. And, and really the, the tax incentives and, and the business investment story is at the core of their short-term economic strategy. And that's that's going to take some time to get going. So that's sort of a late 21, 22 story. So, you know, you look at that profile for how the economy is performing and it doesn't suggest that, you know, things are going to be looking great in sort of September, October next year, you know, but they could be looking good by Easter 22, which is the timing, most likely time of the next election. Yeah, so it was one of the realities of um, the business world is if, you, if you're going to rapidly uh, ramp up operational spending uh, and decide on some major capital projects, this just takes... It's three months at a very at the minimum, mm. uh, and probably six, and probably the start of the next financial year, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I talk to a lot of SMEs um, these days, and you know, the first thing they got to do is actually take stock and have a think about the next five years. You know, they got to go through a whole planning process. So let's just get through the Australian summer to get that done, and then they've got to execute. And execution is everything from actual planning to. Um, funding to starting the process of implementing and, and exactly right. This thing will you – know, there's an urgency because there's a, a hard end date on the tax incentive, the um, full expensing of assets. But, yeah, it's it's just going to take time. So apart from that, I think the other thing is, is that we're going to get a bit of a cliff as we're talking about. The cliff is not imaginary and I'm happy to talk some more on that. Yeah, we'll go to the cliff. Ken, Ken you had a question, mate? Just, just, yeah, just wanted to jump in. Um Warren, I suppose the obvious question, and, and I haven't looked at the budget as closely as you have for good reason, but has, to your mind, the government done enough within that budget to actually stimulate demand? I mean, it, it's one it's one thing that they've, you know, they've promised tax cuts and whatever else and various other stimulatory activity. But, you know, if I were an SME or even a larger size corp, would I be sat back there after seeing those numbers thinking... Oh, yeah, okay, well, I feel more comfortable in that ultimately things are going to get better, so I'm going to go out and start at least planning or thinking about, you know, major or semi-major capex and the like. I mean, is there enough there or they were like, yeah. Yeah, no, well, I, th I think that's a really critical point and it will – sort of some variant of that line of thinking is going to sort of determine how we go. And, and, and look, the government is trying to paint a picture – of an economy that can recover in the next five to ten years, which is really what is going to drive investment in the next two years. And they've sure. done that through their infrastructure strategy. But there's also just a reality to it. We've just, we're probably sitting about four or 5% below pre-COVID output. By the end of 2022, mm. we, if we go back to our previous growth path, we're probably sitting 
sort of 7 or 8% below that now. So there is this growth on offer. Now, if you think about Australia, no one's in a better place than us. If we can get our immigration program going again, all our natural resources, our energy, our metal, our food, our institutions, you know, we in Australia beat ourselves up, but we are ready to take advantage of this new world if we can get a few things right. So there is this growth potential out there. And what the government's got to do is you know, be positive, remind people of that, and then the next trick, which I think is talking to your question, is is the economy and is confidence in the economy going to be enough mm-hmm. to get the trigger point for next year? And that's that's the uncertainty here and the, and the risky piece is that is there enough stimulus being provided in this budget for early 2021, i.e. for literally in four, five, six months' time, to offset mm-hmm. this downturn in, in, in government in spending through the removal of emergency policies, JobKeeper in particular, can we have a smooth transition and then, you know, launch from there? And and that's the question mark, and I, I worry that, you know, that that may not happen. It may be later. We, uh, in a previous podcast uh, a few weeks ago with Con Michalakis from Statewide Super, uh, we all sort of put our bids in for when a vaccine would be available. And if you had bet on the overs for that, for those numbers that Ken, myself and Con had put in, then, uh, then you would have won. Does it bother you? how much of all of this policy depends on a vaccine being ready fairly soon? Uh, not a lot. I mean, I think the, the big challenge – I mean, if we get a vaccine, great. I, I actually think if we get it – the government's assuming a vaccine is readily available and distributable by Q4 next year. That's in the budget. If we get one in Q1, I don't think it means things are going to be better than their current assessment. So that's, that's a bonus if it's early. Yeah. So okay. Well, they're saying it's an upside risk. I don't think it'll do – I think it's just get, you know, I don't think it'll improve anything in, from an economy point of view. And the reality is I, I, I just don't think we should be sort of hanging our hats on vaccines at the moment. You know, you ask business people what do they do and they, they deal with the world that sits in front of them. And and I think our government actually is doing that. And in New South Wales they're doing that. We're trying to COVID normal. And I think the the, the odds still favour the fact that we're going to have to deal with an, a world without a vaccine. And, you know, I don't think it changes a huge amount if we don't get a vaccine because I think we're dealing with a world that won't have a vaccine now. Well, certainly, uh, I think I've mentioned this before, but we at CT have been doing some tracking research on how people perceive this uh, in terms of the time horizon. Uh, And since we started it uh, back in uh, March, April, um, at first people were thinking it was going to be a six month maybe issue uh, and now it's very clearly 40% of people think it's going to be one to two years. Yeah. 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 And, and there's a chance that we just don't get one. You yeah. Know, that we don't get, get one that's effective and it's treatments that are the that are the ticket out of this. Yeah. I'm going to go back to my call from then. I got one horrible call where I said uh, Donald Trump would probably win the election, I think, on that podcast. Well, that was a different time. Yeah, you play the game in front of you, mate. Not, yeah. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'd yeah. like to retract that. <laughs> we, <laughs> haven't, we haven't had the election yet. We haven't had the election yet. You're Donald, not wrong. I don't know where you get this from. Donald Trump's still going to win. <laughs> 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 the, whole, the horse hasn't run yet, Chief. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's right. Well, yeah. We, what, was your, what was your other call? Uh, but my other one was that I think this will probably more be more likely dependent on treatments. Um, yeah. So uh, Regeneron is a name that comes to mind, <laughs> um, uh, but uh, but but uh, you know uh, treatments being um, critical in this. So um, Warren, how would you describe the overall fiscal strategy uh, at this stage? Well, I, I've sort of described it, and that's about getting the economy off these life supports and the reinvigorating the private sector. is is the simple sort of yeah, view on that. They've they've got the long term fiscal strategy, which is shifted. That is. Get that 
process of reinvigorating the economy going, get the recovery started, start a new economic expansion, but now it's stabilise the debt, not get back to a budget surplus. And the 2030-31 forecast from our government for the budget deficit is $69.5 billion, I believe. It was pretty late last Tuesday night when I looked at that. But the idea is that there's no more surpluses ever sort of thing. Now, you know, we'll see what happens in five, ten years' time. But the idea is to stabilise. That's the strategy, big picture. The strategy for the budget and right now the economic policy strategy, which is really important because we don't have really any monetary policy anymore, is just to get that private sector going. And it's there's ideology to this too, which, you know, is, and I don't actually think it's ideology, It's but they've just – you know, they want the private sector to lead the way. They don't want to see an increasingly um, important role for government. They don't want government interventions to be dictating the economy. And, the, and Australia's economy and Australia's society for the last 40 years has not been like that. It has been a private sector-led economy. So, you know, there's a bit of a divide there between, I think, what the ALP would have done. Um, yeah, let's – do you want to go into that? So, I mean, we've got the electric uh, – what is it? There's uh, 2021. God, it feels like we only just had one. Election 2022. 2022. 1922. Okay, so it's possible that during this recovery, yeah, in this in this in this phase that we have, uh, that we're going to have potentially the other guys that are in there. So the ALP uh, policy or their response to 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 this. Well, look, let's you know, in, in broad terms, if the ALP gets in 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 22, it'll probably be because the economy has not, you know, jumped back the way that the government's currently anticipating, and this strategy sort of failed for some reason. Whether because the economy is too weak, international disruption, whatever it is. So then I think, you know, what you'll find then is that the ALP will take um, or may be forced to uh, take you know, a much more heavy-handed role for government approach. Um, and look, at, at the moment what that looks like is keeping JobKeeper in a maybe a milder form for longer, uh, providing more direct government employment, expanding the public service, just growing the public sector in Australia because, I mean, I think there is there's a much bigger longer-term issue about the old one, capitalism and socialism playing out here, and it started with the GFC. Yeah. And, you know, the government, our government, is resisting that force towards a more socialistic state. I mean, they're doing all the things that they need to do, and I think their actions in March, April show that you can work within a free market, open society type framework, but that the government pragmatically does what it needs to do. Yeah. I think we've seen what is the great Australian character, which is lots of principles but even more pragmatism. Yeah, yeah, get it done, whatever gets it done. Yeah, so and I, Australians are like that. And Labor's, Labor's going to have to move, well, theoretically, they'd have to move even further to, further to the left and then imp- – Potentially, and if you listen to Jim Chalmers, I, I get that sense. So JobKeeper wouldn't be wound down. It would, you know, maybe not be as much as it is now. It would be – and it might be more targeted. But there would just be more government. It would be less of an onus to get – the private sector back into play. It would be a different strategy. But look, even the ALP and the coalition, in the long run, they both actually still want you know, a largely private sector-led society. The ALP is not that far left. Well, because the, the interesting question there is like what time of it, what, type, what type of industries do you grow as a result of that, right? So, um, uh, you know, diversification of the Australian uh, economy has been something that has been talked about for mm. um, a couple of decades now. Uh, you know, there is this idea that maybe space um, uh, and uh, some of the science uh, areas, very good pedigree in uh, biotech. At the, at the R&D level. Yeah. At the um, research level. Exactly. Uh, maybe not at the execution and capital level, right? right. So, um, 
But that is an industry where clearly there's some pedigree interest and the CSIRO is very well respected, can attract the right kinds of uh, people, et cetera. Um, so that's one thing. Um, well, I, think, I think that's a really critical part of this budget that's not getting talked about is that we now have a new industry policy. We can talk about that if you want, but really important part of this budget. Yeah, so um, there, there is um, one qu- – just on industry, right? So one thing I wanted to ask you, um, th- there is some – you know, I mean, it's not small beer, but it's, you know, I think $1.6 billion investment in manufacturing. Um, uh, and it partially covers, I suppose, this, but that Australia can start to reshore some of that mm. uh, domestic capacity that uh, just naturally um, being pulled offshore because uh, it was more competitive to do it in other parts of the world, including China, um, but throughout Asia. Um, uh, so w- what about this idea that, Australia can start to rebuild some of that capacity internally. Yep. Um, you know, we've higher labour costs here. What do you think about the impact of that? So we can. Um, manufacturing as a share of output has gone from about 13.5% in 1980 to about 6 now. So it's just straight line down. Um, and, you know, the, the key element of this industry strategy is critical industry, which is actually, you know, not wanting to be reliant on certain things for offshore, so that's really the medical piece and various others. I wouldn't overread that. It's actually industries that you know we we should be doing well in. So I've done some work around food and beverage. So I'll put it in the context of that. I'm not you know big on space defence. They're going to have their own issues, but food and beverage, which is our biggest manufacturing industry, and is really critical. But the key is to restore a competitive market. So food and beverage in Australia has two major headwinds. One is the oligopoly structure of the retailers, which is essentially making it very hard to be profitable as a supplier or manufacturer. And the other one is that most of the imports are coming from countries where their government actually gives their domestic industries a lot of support. So the big thing with industry policy, uh, putting aside the the sort of the particular market structure issue in, 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 in retail and food and beverage is... Australia has had no real industry policy other than to be light touch and let the market determine the outcomes. And what that means is that we, our, our manufacturers have been competing against firms that have a lot of government help, whether it's full-on you know, greenfield site development, tax incentives, collaboration hubs, whatever it is, there's been a lot more support in general. And it's not just, you know, obviously China is the ultimate sort of expression of this, but that's the structure of their society, but it's a career it's a Japan, it's a Singapore, it's an Ireland, it's a Netherlands, even Canada. Um, and so really we have you know, the idea that our government comes in and identifies industries where we should be doing well or better because there is a competitive advantage that sits within Australia or a comparative advantage is actually just about levelling the playing field. Okay, And so that, that's the big thing about an industry policy, a modern strategic industry policy, is an effective collaboration between government business and the innovators, i.e. the research people, whether it's the universities, the CSIRO, clear vision, trust, working together for a common goal. It's actually not the culture in Australia. I've now gone from working in business basically to spending some time in in, uh, uh, public service and then now in universities and the cultures are so different and it's not a natural place to come together. It's a natural place to push apart. Mm. Unlike, you know, in Korea, you know, the the collaboration between government and industry to get things done is huge. So, look, they're wanting to build plans for these industries and they want to – that money is for basically building collaboration and trust. Uh, I must say, it's one thing that I really noticed when I first came to Australia. I suppose, you know, like the frog in water, I've um, sort of gotten used to it, but – 
uh, back in, in Ireland where I grew up and you sort of, you know, you look at how closely the university sector works with industry uh, and with government to advise and have a lot of input on policy. Yeah. Uh, whereas here, um, universities, frankly, don't have that great of a name. Uh, UTS, I think, um, you know, is a little bit different, maybe UNSW as well. But it, as on the whole, in terms of the relationship between uh, um, third level tertiary education as an advisory <coughs> sort of public think tank for improving the country, um, that kind of isn't there. It's not as strong. And the universities are working on it, but it's a cultural thing. So look, it's it's a big shift for Australia because essentially, the you know the eighties and nineties were actually all about getting government out of industry because it was just way too heavy, tie tariff walls, a whole bunch of stuff, and mm-hmm. you know the car industry was the last you know flink. The whole idea, to put it in economics terms, the whole idea of strategic industry policy versus old school bad industry policy is whatever intervention you do, you want to take that industry or that firm closer to the global efficient production frontier not further away. So subsidising car makers, US and Japanese car makers in Australia with an implicit idea of keeping jobs, stopped those car makers from automating in the last 20 years, made them fall behind global best practice and made them less efficient. It was bad. postponing the original. Without the subsidies, we still have a car industry of some sort. I was was just going to jump in and and perhaps to some extent paraphrase, Warren, what what you've spoken about, but... Let's look at the historical perspective, and I agree 100%. It's cultural, right? Historically, we were a protectionist economy, right? I mean, industries existed that shouldn't have. We had tariffs and subsidies and whatever else. We killed other industries, you know, in the 50s and 60s that should have thrived potentially, space and exploration, R&D and whatever else. And that was fine. And culturally, we were maybe still are the lucky country, welfare state, etc., etc. And rather than maybe... In some instances, we were working, you know, on a comparative advantage basis, hence all the, um, you know, rural stuff, the primary digging out of the earth and whatever else. But, I mean, what you're suggesting now in in a broader global landscape is that the government willingly, uh, and we, and maybe Australia as as a country, willingly starts to move away from stuff where it has what's left of a comparative advantage and more towards an absolute advantage. I mean, in the scheme of things, is that really going to work? Like in, in economic terms that... You know, if we move towards absolute advantage in some industries, aren't we just going to get absolutely caned down the road? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I don't think there's any point us making TVs in Australia, for example. Um, right. So, yeah, we got to we got to get the mix right. And, and I think, you know, the, the, the journey now around industry policy is to work out how we can get that collaboration and build that trust and come up with industry plans where government pr- can provide sensible support. Um, so so where, where, which, which industries? I mean, food and beverage you mentioned, but, I mean... That, that's based, I suppose, what, on exporting stuff or just domestic demand and, and which other industries? Well, it'll be both. Out? That'll be, you know, import competing as well as export. And a lot of the industry policy is going to be about scale, which has been a real problem for Australian manufacturers. Um, the other industries are resources and minerals, their space, their medical uh, products. Uh, renewable energy too. Renewable energy and recycling, which is huge. And the, and the Prime Minister is quite big on that, which actually relates back to the food and beverage piece quite heavily. Uh, the recycling piece, the circular economy piece. So, look, there's a lot there. And, you know, the other thing is is that it's a starting point, you know. Um, you know sure. I think, it, I think it's just about us being smarter as a country, you know. We, we were sort of smart in the yeah. 80s to get government out of industry and as the world opened up and was intensely globalising through that period, we've sort of got away with it. 
so to speak, or it's worked, it's made us efficient. I think now we need smart industry policy because just about everyone else is doing it. And it's, and it's not that it's it's wrong, um, it's just that it's got to be done well and it's not heavy-handed government intervention, it's smart intervention. And for all the criticism that you might make, you know, of the bureaucracy in, in Europe, etc., they do have extremely well-coordinated industry policy that helps each uh, local, uh, each member state, uh, execute on uh, policy priorities locally and make sure that, you know, countries aren't um, smashing into each other yeah, when yeah, it comes to... Yeah. Um, yeah. And Ireland's done a great job, it seems, um, and the German model is, you know, I don't fully understand it, but it's obviously a foundation for success. So there's all sorts of different ways to do it and we can learn from others. That's the other thing. We're so far behind, we really can learn from others because, um, you know, everyone's doing it, as they say. Um, so quickly, the reform agenda. Um, what do you think uh, needs to happen? So one, this has been one of the, the um, uh, uh, you know, I think the budget was so big and complex, right? This was about um, fiscal measures to make sure that people stay afloat. Right? Yeah, get the um, economy going again. Yeah, uh, and provide some confidence that... This is going to be okay. Government's got the nation's back, uh, and there is a way through. Um, then there's the question of uh, what you do to improve some of the things you were talking about. What do you think that uh, agenda needs to look like? Yeah, so it was pretty light on structural reform, not not absent. Um, the insolvency law changes, the responsible lending. I mean, they left the tax. The last, the last tax, the stage three tax cuts, where basically we have three tax brackets. That's reform. What we just did this time was less about reform, but really simplifying personal income taxes reform. So they left that. And that's the issue with reform. It's, it's, it's politically tricky. You tend to have to buy it, um, i.e. to somehow compensate those who are damaged by any structural changes to the way the economy operates. And they haven't really done that. So are they going to do it? I don't know if there's going to be a better time. But what they should be doing is thinking about what sort of – well, there's the, the basics. I mean, the basic of reform is to say, how do you make the place operate more efficiently without sort of sacrificing too much sort of uh, you know, equity – inequality issues and so forth. So, look, I think the reality is is that we've got to encourage business. And, you know, I don't – you know, I'm not so much about big business, but I'm not sure that we should distinguish too much. But we've got to cut business taxation and really supercharge businesses. And I don't think it's cutting personal income taxes. I mean, if you look at what – think about what we've got to do. We've got to try and expand the productive capacity of our economy significantly over the next 20 years without racking up too much debt. We've sort of done the debt piece. And when did we last do that? We did that in the 50s and 60s, and that's about reinvesting profits. So the last 30 years is about using the marginal investment dollar coming from debt because of the big increase in um, the access to debt across the society, paying out a lot more of the profits or the revenue of businesses to management, you know, it's executive pay and all that, um, which has had an inequality, inequality issue, an income inequality issue progressively in most countries in the last 30 years, and not encouraging the reinvestment of profits, encouraging the paying out. We want to sort of slow that down. We want to try and you know, recycle the surplus of the country each year back into the productive capacity and not use debt to do that. So, But there's also a major uh, tax incentive, isn't there, and overall management incentive uh, in listed companies to pay out in dividends because it creates demand for your equity right so like some uh 
stocks because of the franking credits um, uh, scheme, mm. you can get basically tax-free uh, income. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if you own a certain number of shares. Uh, and that incentivizes some stocks to be known as dividend stocks. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right? So, which creates a certain level of demand for them. Um, but then at the same time, we have this question about, well, as you just said, why don't some of the profits get reinvested in bigger programs, experimentation, mm. R&D, et cetera? Yeah, yeah, which I think has been a weak point in Australia. Not exclusively. I mean, some companies have done very well, but many don't. So, look, I think the tax – I mean, someone once said there's three issues when it comes to the economy. Tax, taxation and tax. Yeah. Um, so it's the tax system and the incentives that it creates. Um, we've had a temporary lapse in any concept of a constraint being – around the government budget, um, but uh, and hopefully we won't be a new reality won't dawn on us too quick, but we are going to need to raise some tax at some stage in the future, I think, um, and provide those incentives. And, look, the other thing is what a concept of balanced growth. So, you know, this isn't all that um, popular, but inequality, I think, reduces the capacity for strong, sustainable growth. If we have a more even distribution of income, you get real demand for product through low and middle incomes and you know obviously America's in the worst position of anyone and UK's had a pretty bad 30 years and you know we haven't had a great 30 years so we've got to keep an eye on that so yeah look there's there's all sorts of reforms that we can do there's they're, they're listed and so forth but we've the the simple matter is we've got to make investment in the productive capacity of the economy which includes labor and their skills so people's skills are the investable capacity other what can be invested in to increase the capacity of the economy. And uh, that's that's got to be done through business taxation in mind. So you leave personal income tax where it isn't just drop business taxes through the floor. Yep. And that's going to encourage that, I believe. The other one, which is not so much reform in the structural sense, but I think the next 20 years is going to be all about people, about the human infrastructure, human capital, whatever you want to call it. So they're talking about skills and reskilling. I mean, we've got vocation, what we call vocational, but, you know, there's trades and that's not going to go away. Then we've got scholarship, which is going to uni. That's important. Then this new thing in the middle, well, not new, it's always been there, but skills, you know. I mean, it, our service sector economy is, I think, on the verge of a major consolidation, similar to what happened to manufacturing in the late 80s, early 90s, as technology is put in place of people. And, you know, we're just forestalling that. That's going to be a real challenge in the next five years. So when you say service sector... Uh, Banks... You know, HQs, I mean, there's just going to be so much automation of what people do in, in service sector businesses. Mm. Um, and it is happening, of course, but I think it will continue to run through. So what we do with our people is going to be critical. Um, so keep, keep going into that about, about how skills – so you, you're talking about a consolidation in the service sector means that we need more emphasis on a skills solution? That's right. We, okay. we, we, we just got to keep upgrading the skills of the, of, the, of the Australian people basically and making it easy and desirable for them. And, and the mindset, I mean, we are basically transitioning in one generation from a job for life to 50 jobs in a life. Well, yep. oh, that's overstating it. No, no, that's about right. Yep. But you know what I mean. And what that actually means isn't about changing jobs. Which people, you know, because everyone hates their first day at a new job, meeting everyone, g'day. Um, no, it's about skills. And that's the thing that, you know, is hard. And it gets harder. I mean, as you get to into your 40s and 50s, it gets harder to learn new skills. But it's a mindset. Yep. And, you know, the mindset that you go to uni, you learn something, or you go and do a trade and you become a plumber, yeah. and then that's it, it's got to go. And that, you know, they 
that one generation, that's a radical shift in the human condition. Um, and it, it is shifted. I can't see it changing. And so we've got to get agility into our people. Yeah. Isn't that does, that, what, does that make sense? Robotics, robotics, automation, AI, and definitely computers, the internet, was supposed to open us up to, be, to, to live in this renaissance of a world where we can, where we can go, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take three months and learn this new thing because I can afford to do well, so. I think, so that, I I think that's right. That, that last bit just got extracted from us. They still kept us at work for 14 hours. <laughs> right, <yeah. laughs> that's that's well, what happened. We've got, yeah. Yeah, monetary, you, you, spend the, you spend eight of those 14 hours on Instagram. Mate, yeah, that's right. I've got to get the right filter. Yeah, look, we've got, we got some behavioural issues we've got to deal with with social media and other things. But anyway, I mean, it is all moving in that direction. Um, and it's going to – the government has to play a role, you know, and I think the university sector needs to be smarter about this. Um, scholarship is not going to change, but it's not going to be the marginal success factor. We still need scholarship. We still need to send a lot of kids to uni um, and we need PhD students, all of that stuff. Yeah, but we yeah. need this skilling capacity, which universities are uniquely placed through their methodology, through their rigour, through their all their learning knowledge and so forth, to deliver on this yeah. and they're sort of dragging their feet a little bit in my opinion. I've been involved in some of this at UTS and they've got some good programs happening but they've got to, they've got to do more. Apparently, apparently that, that comes and this is sort of the, the view that's coming more from the, from the, uh, the universal basic income sort of guys like that. But the, the, when we change that mindset or when we change the way that the people who have got what we would consider to be shitty jobs, if I mean, excuse the language, that's my first swear word, Ken, thank you, um, that, that, that we say that, okay, so you, you're, a, you're a chef or you're a fry chef. That's, that's really important. That should, be, that should be a job that you're super proud of. That should be something that you have. And then you, and then you go and be some other thing. I'm going to be a mechanic. I'm going to be saying all these, I'm going to be a plumber, all these jobs we consider awful. If they're not career. They're not career jobs. Being, a, being, a, being someone who works in, in a restaurant, that's not a career job. Well, why, it is. Why, is, why is when I'm hungry – that's the guy that I need. Yeah. I don't need someone who's PR for a consulting firm or consultant for a PR firm. That, that, that I, don't even, I don't think I'll ever need those guys in my life, but I'm pretty sure I'm going to need a fry chef. And when we start treating those guys as that's a really important job, you should be proud of that job, or the people who over the last six months have been treated like heroes because you, you, you're the guys that are out there on the front line stacking the shelves at Coles and we're treating you like heroes. When this is done, they'll be back to being treated like dirt again. Or keep keeping hospitals clean. You're the guys that are yeah. keeping hospitals clean. You're keeping people alive. Now mm. let's start treating those people like that's actually an important job and not just something that we just give to whoever. Well, I think I think it's you go back and it's a culture where everyone has a role and it's not a status thing. You know, it's that you know you're a, you're a teacher and that's important to our society. You know, you're a chef and we need that. And we need and, it. And, you know, you're a, I mean garbage man, a critical role, and well, you yes. know. Well sought after job in some sectors, so look, you've got to sort of shift away from you know. There's just so much sort of status and 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 what that all comes from is is income differentials. Yeah, you know, and and look, this idea. One of the first things I was learned in microeconomics was you know in terms of learning about payoffs was the payoff between work and leisure. You know, yeah, microeconomics. It was literally the first lecture or something, and we've lost sight of that in this society. We have got the potential through technology for us to be able to produce so much more than we need, which means we can actually have heaps of leisure. And we've, it's all about, you know, it's like redistribution. Like we've got to learn how to redistribute it. We've got, we probably only need half the people to work is if we could redistribute it properly, but people can follow the arts and culture and all these other things. There's something not working in our society, but leisure can be a bigger part. Technology is enabling it. We've just got to sort of not have such a 
super competitive antagonistic society where everyone is sort of seeking to pick it off as opposed to a collaborative one where we work out how to make the place work in a balanced way. Yeah, yeah well that, one of those first conversations, those uh, conversations that you have with people. So, what do you do? Yeah, yeah. where's your business card? I don't have a business card. I cook food. So the yeah. biggest, the biggest element of this, and this is why I think super easy monetary policy and holding interest rates too low is sort of quite evil. Um, is we've used up all of our income extra capacity and just. Yeah, it's all been expressed through racking up debts and bidding up the price of properties. And that's a great reflection of status and it's just it's just intergenerational wealth transfer and it's just ridiculous. I mean, just taking property prices up and up and up. And that's, you know, why in this day and age does everyone need to work? Isn't it a fair thing to say that having a single income household is actually not a bad thing? I mean, it's just treated like that's a really bad thing. You should everyone should be out there getting a job and we've got to yep. drive unemployment to zero and if you want if you want it to be. If 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 you want to have a single income household, it should be okay yeah, and, to have so. And it should be easier than it was it before be because we are so much smarter and have more technology and able to produce more with less that we should be have more yeah. we should have more single income households rather than less than we had thirty, forty years. The, 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 there's a couple of facets to that, surely. I mean, one, this is not an Australian problem. This is a global phenomenon and it's only headed one way. But the other side of it is if you if you really want to go down that road and make it socially, culturally acceptable for a single-income household and or more leisure time, whatever, you need to go down the Scandi model some part of the way. And that Scandi model is being taxed up the absolute wazoo. Now... As, as it stands, I think, what, what's the highest marginal personal tax rate in, in Oz these days? 52? 47. 47 and a half. Yeah. 47 and a half, right? So even here in Holland, which isn't quite the Scandia model, but it's, it's not too far off, you're looking at 52% highest marginal. There's no tax-free threshold. It kicks in from the first euro you earn, um, and there's only three, three brackets. If you, if you, and as I said, if you go down the Scandia model, because I, I lived in Denmark for a while, I mean, you're getting taxed beyond an absolute joke. The government is earning far more than you are, but that money's being redistributed properly. Everything's looked after. And at least, you know, you can see where every single penny's going. You try convincing an Australian of that. Yeah, no. Honestly. Very hard. Yeah. And look, this is the the thing. You want a free and open society. You want open markets, but also you want balance and stability. And, and, you know, we just seem to be a long way away from a solution to that. Um, Quickly, one thing. Can we ever solve the problem of house prices in this country? Well, you know, following on from that, um, it's, it's, it's unlikely. I mean, the one sort of maybe sort of light on the on the hill is that interest rates are nearing zero so i'm just wondering if if house prices can go up much beyond uh much after interest rates get to their floor um we've been looking for that floor for a while um but look i think the big shift in housing activity owner occupiers in particular in the last couple of months is that it's all capitalizing basically the falling interest rates in the last two years um so we're going to probably see a 10 to 15% rise um, or probably are in the process of doing that. I think beyond that, though, once interest rates are near their floor, which might be a mortgage rate in Australia of around 2%, so 200 basis points spread over yeah, Where funding. do you get the next leg up from? Yeah, because I, I personally think a huge part of the, the increase in house prices is just purely related to lower interest rates and serviceability. Um, of course, this leaves us just extraordinarily vulnerable to inflation and higher interest rates. It's it's it's, it's quite frightening um, given the long sweep of history. So yeah, I, I, I think actually there is there is some some 
prospect that house prices could top out soon. Just on that notion, okay, so let's say they top out. Okay, fine. I mean, they've been going up exponentially for X number of years. Do you, is there a real reason for them to, to really fall out of bed besides what we've already seen and half of which has been recovered? I don't think so. No? Yeah, well, look, the, 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 the one test I want to see in the market um, is the end of the bank monitorium. So the, the big take-up of deferrals has been around um, mortgages. They're sort of running at about 15 to 18%. I think it's down a little bit. Some people are paying back more. But we're not going to know how that all shakes out until mm-hmm. June next year. And, and, and although, you know, huge, huge dichotomy in the market between sort of owner-occupiers, wealthy people versus investors and renters and lower-income people who are all sort of moving back with their parents or whatever. So or moving in together. So let's see how that goes. That's that's This shock hasn't hit the housing market till that plays out, um, and then we'll see how that goes. But you're exactly right. The, the housing market just appears bulletproof. And the one thing that I think also will add to it, and this will be the same for commercial property, is that equities are just so expensive. So there's something quite appealing about buying a – Block of land three hours from Sydney, as opposed to yeah. a bunch of bad fish. Well, I, I know, I know this. I know this personally that I've actually had a couple of couple of good chunky mid tier clients who have who have said, "All right, let's pack it up, close it down, because there's some commercial property I've got to buy." Yeah, and they're right. actually using their super, and they're and they're shifting it from the equity yeah. space. Commercial business property, good. Yeah, yeah. And, and buying commercial industrial, yeah. I reckon. Yep, yeah. yeah. several clients. It's good, and yeah. and I'm just going. Well, that's that's what your super's for. You know, you can't stop them. Mm. But you know, this market's gone great. You've done good. And now go and take that take that opportunity, and they're and they're, and they're making the, they make they're taking the chance to do so. That's my anecdote on that, and that it's happened a few times. Yeah, so, yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I think I think not even super and not even uh, commercial. I think there's a, a lot of examples of just you know well off people taking a million bucks out and going and buying a yep. country house yep. or I'd, a coastal th- house. That has happened as well. Yeah, yep. I can. That's that's the anecdotes are coming through on that too. There is something tangible about property that's better than gold and better than yeah, you know, obviously. Well, yeah. It's put some roof artific- artificially, artificially stimulated equities market that's been keeping us all paid for a while. Congratulations. Well, thank you. It's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can tell you about my tax bracket if you want. But it's not <laughs> um, uh, let's quickly talk about money. Um, the Barmel Fund Manager Survey was out this week. Uh, always worth a quick look. A couple of big things in there. Um, there's a sense, uh, interestingly, that we're kind of through the worst of this, at least among funds, funds managers, right? Their expectation of recession in the next 12 months is now net minus 54 uh, and more than 60% saying that we're at the start of a new cycle. Uh, we talked about this uh, a few months ago, actually, with JP Morgan's Kerry Craig on the show uh, back in June, July. I was away that day. We're at the start of a new cycle. Yeah, we are. JP Morgan, um, yep. Uh, but um, the... And one interesting thing in there uh, for me, we touched on this earlier, is that nearly 40% of the uh, money managers surveyed are expecting a credible vaccine announcement uh, in the first quarter next year. The first quarter. Um, So, like, literally weeks away. Mm. Um, uh, But then overall, cash levels are going down, uh, more stocks are getting bought. Um, So, um, how do you think about equities, uh, 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 Warren? I know, you know, you... uh, the, um, your mind looks over all of these uh, factors, so I'm curious to get your take on on the, the expensive equity. <coughs> yeah, so it's 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 all about monetary policy, and you know whether you look at just holding long rates down as a valuation PE driver, um, or whether it's literally what some central banks, i.e. the Fed, are doing and injecting cash directly into the wholesale financial system and equity markets via the purchase of corporate bonds and so forth. So there is definitely a, a, I don't know if the word's bubble, but there's something sort of not 
matching up well with reality. Um, so very, very, very cautious. Um, and I just – in markets in my career, there's, there's, there's obviously lots of sayings, but buying the rumour and selling the fact is – I don't know why it always works, but it seems to. It's usually shorter-term you know, data points, information points that drive this, but there's something I worry about that if we got a vaccine um, or if Biden gets in or there's not a big you – know, I just wonder if some really good news comes through if the market just doesn't crap itself out. Yeah, the general <laughs> thing, I think, and this is the take from, from some other places that we've seen, is, is that once – keep on going, no reason to change anything into the election, but, and then, then stimulus comes to scrape it. Then once the vaccine is out – that, that will probably be the, okay, we can just take a bit of a rest on this one now. Fiscal tap's going to turn off. Well, because not, not, not least of which because, I mean, let's say they do announce a vaccine, I don't know, Q1, Q2, who cares? The lag between actually announcing it as, as being feasible and wide distribution and effects taking place and real numbers and the R rate globally coming down enough and significantly, that's, that's at least two quarters worth of time, right? That's six months. So the, you've, you've got that... Oh my God, we've we've got a vaccine, and then six months later, only a few people are getting better. Well, there's there's your answer, isn't it? Yeah, and that's and that could be it. Um, well, just on just on the on the another observation on equities is I watch traders, uh, price makers, hedge funds, but people with a very short horizon for many many years, and they had a view, but they also had to think about what everyone else in the market was doing, and often it was through market positioning, and you know. And it's always great to sort of, you know, have a great trade on the back of everyone stopping out of their positions. But, mm. but you know, fund managers just – they just invest and take the long view. You know, that's my 25 years of experience. Well, I actually see now this idea that real money managers are almost in a trading mentality where they don't know – they have no anchor – and they're just, they've got to, you know, they don't want to underperform in the next three months or the next year. And so they're looking at what the next guys are going to do. and, and Buy stocks. Yeah, buy stocks. <laughs> and then suddenly when they don't buy stocks, it's like, oh, my God, the valuations are here. I'm out. So yeah, yeah. I'm, I just think there's going to be some pretty punchy vol. So if normal trading activity, price making, punting sort of is worth, you know, whatever it is for any given market, but let's just say 1% or 2% vol or something then the big guys, the real money guys, if they're in a, in a medium-term volatile environment where they sporadically get in and out sort of thing, then we could see 10 15% swings a few times a year from here on in. Yeah. Um, that would be the way I – that's the way I feel about it. I mean, James, you've got more insight into it than me. But. Well, the, uh, I, think, I think it's also what we saw, the potential with the tech, with the tech sell-off, the mini sell-off that happened over September where NASDAQ was off 10% at one stage last month, that you're up so much – I can't possibly lock in a loss on, on these holdings on my fangs. So I'll sell wherever because I'll still be up and I don't care about crossing the spread on that and I don't care about the volatility. I don't care if I'm selling at 8% lower than where it was at the end of August because I'm still up 50%. We actually we, we were a part of that story as well. We just went, we're going to lock it in in September and just get it done. Yeah. And, and so that, 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 that for everything else is going to be, yeah, I can see how you're thinking on that. that that's, yeah. that that's a very real possibility. Yeah. The other big, uh, the big thing out of the fund manager survey was the, what's the, uh, the question of what's the biggest risk, just keeping it relevant for the next couple of weeks, the biggest risk in the election far and away is contested. If it's a contested election, the, the fund managers are seeing that as being a big risk. And I do, okay, that's, yes, obviously it is the biggest risk. But surely that's not still something that people have factored in. And I checked the date. So this was only done between the 1st and the 8th of October. So it's, it was only done last week and the week before. That, okay, so how many fund managers actually think that this election will be contested? And it's 61%. Wow. 
So I, I would have I would have had it down at being more twenty or thirty percent. Like that, where that's, I'm sitting. that would have been pre-Trump COVID, right? So that would have been pre-Trump really blowing out in the polls. Well, that, it depends. I suppose if you're asked over the the first week in October, then well, it, yeah, well, it's it's in, it's in that mix. It's in that mix. Because right? I think one of the reasons the market's done well in the last few weeks is because Biden's blowing out so much. It won't be contested. The contested yep. risk has gone down massively. That's, that's exactly it. Um, yep. It's not on the stimulus. It's not on the stimulus thing. It's been on, on a non-contested election is a buying opportunity, and a blue wave is fantastic. But it is on the stimulus thing because the stimulus will drop in December. Yeah, just not now. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but that's a classic bother room sell the fact. So yeah, yeah. even if Biden gets in and there's no contest, then the market will go, "What's next?" and it'll probably sell off five percent. Yeah, okay. and then and then here's two point two trillion dollars worth of stimulus, yeah. buying opportunity every single time. Yeah. Um, okay, well, it all sounds like a very good material for a few podcasts in the couple of weeks, I think. That's why I'm here. Yeah, I think we might do that. Um, okay, you don't forget to subscribe, rate us, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on iTunes at The Bip Show. We're also on Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Twitter. It's at the underscore Bip underscore show. And we're on Facebook, too. Just search The Bip Show. We're all there individually at Colgo, at James Whelan, 42, at Ken Vexler. And Warren Hogan is on there, too. It's at underscore Warren Hogan, I think, mm-hmm. isn't it? Yeah. Oh, well, that, that was good memory, good memory. by me. Um, uh, Warren Hogan, uh, industry professor at, uh, at UTS. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. That was a fascinating chat. Fantastic. Thanks for having me. Look forward to doing it again sometime. Uh, Ken, great talking. Likewise. Thank you, guys, and thanks, Warren. Cheers. Uh, James, good one. Thank you. Mate, always good. Thank you so much. Look forward to the next one. The show is produced by Eamon Connolly and Rick Salter. We will catch you next time. Thanks for listening. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>